You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to. That one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast, so you can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au a few hours after you listen to the program. The extraordinary thing is we get extraordinary guests every week. I don't know how you do it, Kelly. How do you do it? Um, I just speak to a lot of people and mm. um, cultivate... Mm. Good relationships mm. and all that kind of stuff. The type of stuff I'm no good at, basically. <laughs> now we've got uh, I've got you on a little expedition to find us another extraordinary guest, which uh, hopefully we'll be able to find one for next week. That was always good. Well, we've got another extraordinary guest. Sally is with us all the way from somewhere in Australia. How are you, Sally? Good, thank you. How are you? Not bad. How's uh, How's the lockdown treating you? I'm actually not in lockdown. I'm oh. in regional New South Wales, so oh. I'm not in lockdown. You're not in lockdown. Is it, is it making no. is it making any difference to your life currently? Um, I care for my elderly parents, so right. I tend to stay fairly isolated anyway. Um, mm. And I live in a very small town, so right. not much going on here. So I do get out and about, but mainly into nature rather than where R- there's people. Right. So um, we usually start at the beginning. Uh, um, are you happy to tell us what year you were born in? Yeah, I was born in 1981. 81, so you're relatively young compared to myself. Um, so were you born in New South Wales? Yeah, I was born in Albury. Albury, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Albury's kind of the place nobody who lives in Melbourne really remembers, do they? On our way to Sydney, you kind of bypass it these days. Yeah, you go around it, yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. The, in the good old days, you'd go right through it. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was spending my misspent youth as an 18-year-old, I would traverse Albury. So what was it like being a young person in Albury? Well, I grew up um, on a property outside of half an hour away from Albury, um, mm. outside of a small town. So right. my childhood was spent outside a lot of the time. Um, we mixed with the town kids sometimes, but a lot of the time I was spending with my siblings, playing right. in the creek and running around the bush. Um Right. Yeah, that's kind of what we did most of the time, yeah. Did you see any snakes? 
I certainly did. Yeah. See many snakes in my life. Yeah. yeah. And what uh, what did your parents say to you about you know, these little snake critters? Well, just to be careful and uh-huh. you know don't aggravate them. So I remember one time actually they went down to the swamp um, with my brother and my sister and a few friends. I can't remember how old we were, but we had the canoe. We carried the canoe down there, and um, there was a massive brown snake. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I was thinking, we have to freeze. Like, that's what mum and dad said. Yep. But my brother went into full protective mode. Right. Um, decided to kind of, like, get the paddle and pointed at the snake as if, like, get away from my sisters, you know? Oh, um, right. right. Uh, Snake didn't really like that, kind of reared up a bit. Yeah. Uh, and then we all just ran, um, right. dropped the canoe and ran, and then kind of regrouped near a tree and went, we just did, like, everything we're not supposed to do. Yeah, well, it's like that when you're a kid. I remember I used to have problems with red-bellied black snakes because mm. we used to live near a, a swamp too. Yeah, yeah, because they're kind of... Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a rela- it's an interesting relationship between being a kid in the country and your relationship with the natural environment, did it have much impact on you? Yeah, I was actually thinking about it this morning. Um, I, I feel that it's made it difficult for me to live in towns and cities. Um, I feel like I'm watched all the time, you know, like there's always something going on and rather than being the observer, I feel like I'm the observed, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah, an interesting kind of experience. When you're out in nature all the time, you're always paying attention to what's around you and exploring and just kind of being a part of that natural environment. And it's it's unfamiliar to me to be in places where there's lots of concrete. Right. You said you had brothers and sisters. How many sisters and how many brothers? Um, I had one brother and mm. I have one sister. Right, yeah. right. And are they older or younger? Uh, my brother was older than me, and my sister is younger than me. Right, and um, you said your parents are still are your parents are still alive. Yes, they're still alive. They're in their seventies. In this, yep. right? And what what was it like uh, for your parents? How hard was their struggle on that? Was it a small farm, or what type of farm was it? So it's just a block of land. Mm-hmm. You didn't do any farming on it. Right. Um, my mum was a teacher, and my dad was a carpenter. Right. So um, the land that they lived on was just, yeah, kind of just bush, I suppose. Um, and it was quite a challenge, really, because we were quite different to the people in this town. This is a churchy, farmy community, and we're a bit left, more left than the people living here. So we found it quite a struggle, um, the lack of kind of diversity and culture and stuff like that, Yeah. So did they make a conscious decision as a couple to live in the country? Because I remember, because they're a little bit, they're about my vintage, you know, I remember um, a lot of people, a lot of um, radicals who became disillusioned moved out, you know, down to Nimbin, Mullumbimby, you know, even Albury, Wodonga, those areas. So were that, you think they were part of that generation or? Uh, so what happened was my parents uh, actually grew up in Victoria and then, uh, they met in Melbourne when my mum was in teachers' college and they moved up to Queensland, um, up to near Noosa, uh, back in the, I think it must have been late 60s, yeah. um, um, early 70s. Um, and then they built a house there in the shape of a dome, actually. It was a really fascinating dome-shaped property, a uh, house on land. And then... Um, 
my mum got pregnant and my parents were concerned about the drugs in that area at the time and didn't really want to bring their children up in that environment. Mm -hmm. So they decided to move down here where my grandparents lived. So their decision was more about moving to be close to family so that we would be near our grandparents. It was a... I think they made the right decision. It was a, it was a huge issue because by the time the uh, radical activism had died down by the mid seventies, you're quite right. Drugs took a hold mm. of a lot of people and did a, a lot of damage over a long period of time. So it must have been heart rendering for them to leave after building this uh, unusual house and trying to, uh, you know, establish themselves there. It must have been very hard. Yeah, I think so. And just moving somewhere where there's wasn't very many like-minded people with a challenge. Um, mm. But my parents had a very good friend who lived in Melbourne. Um, and he's kind of one of my role models for activism. He was um, arrested in the, I think it must have been the early 70s yeah, well, uh, for I'd, activism. Either been moratoriums or the Springbok tours. It had been one of the other, most likely. Mm. And he mm. was actually jailed for that. Mm. Um, was he a draft resistor? Pardon? If he was jailed, was he a draft resistor? Maybe he was a I draft resistor. I don't know resistor. the whole story, actually. Yeah, yeah. Something I should probably talk to my dad about. But um, mm, mm. So I grew up with listening to those two debating politics all the time, my dad and him. You know, They'd right. sit on the front veranda and they'd be, they'd be kind of having these jovial discussions about politics and everyone else would be kind of laughing at them, kind of getting worked up at each other. Right, um, right. Well, and, it wasn't the usual discussion between, you know, a Marx, a Marxist, and a Trotskyist, or something like that, was it? Something that esoteric, or was it a bit more general? The discussion. You got any idea? Um, probably a bit more general. I think, mm. yeah, they they just got into all kinds of discussions and debates, and they just like to pull apart arguments. And sometimes we'd listen to them and be like, they're saying the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they arguing? <laughs> um, and so when I moved to Melbourne when I was 18, um, I used to sit around um, his kitchen table a lot and talk about activism. And yeah. um, he used to say how disillusioned he felt. Because, yes. You know, every time I'd come back from a protest or something, he'd say, I've been fighting for these issues for 30 years. It breaks my heart that you're still doing it, you know? Right, right. Now, he sounds like um, you're either a conscientious objector or a draft resistor. Normally... During that period, if you were involved in protest and you got jail time, it was usually a short period of time unless you were a conscientious objector or, or draft resistor, and it was a pretty big decision to make, you know, not to, um, not to participate in national service in those days. I so, think it had something to do with um, some computer system breaking into hacking or something uh, like that. He, he could have broken into... The computer system it was in Richmond. It was a uh, U.S. company which was associated with the military at that particular point in time. And mm. at one stage, it actually burnt down, if I remember correctly. But that's another story. It's one of those things that now that we're talking about it, I realise that there's more questions that I could ask about it. I just didn't yeah. ask. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it'd be worthwhile once all this blows over. You could go down and. Uh, do a story on him because these stories are lost. Mm, well, he's passed away now. So, oh, I see. Oh, well, know, yeah. Part of that story is mm. probably lost forever. But right. um, mm. but my dad would know some stuff about it, I'm sure. What was going on, yeah. Mm. So where did you go to school? I went to school at the local primary school um, and then I went 
to um, and high school out in the country. But when I got to Year 9, I became a bit rebellious of this kind of mm. perspective of schooling. And I came home one day and told my parents that I want to go to school in Albury. So I went to the second half of my high school was spent in Albury. Right. Um, but I was actually quite a rebellious uh, student. Um, I didn't really deal with authority too well. Mm. So I was kind of in trouble quite a lot in my last few years of school. Usually with radical parents, the rebellion goes the other way. You would have become an accountant <laughs> or a priest, but you continued the rebellion. Well, <laughs> What was life like in the uh, in primary school? You said you had very little in common, your family, mm. with the rest of the people. And obviously they were, were they Bible-thumping Christians or just... Mm-hmm. Yes, and we were, we were bullied, you know. We were the hippies. We were the weirdos, you know. Mm. We were the outcasts. We were the swamp rats. Right. You know, so we had friends, but it was almost like that only be friends with us in secret in a way. If, if we came into town, the kids would tease us. Right, right. Mm. And uh, were the teachers aware of any of this or they just didn't bother to worry about it in those days? Yeah, they were aware of it, but I think their dealings of it were pretty inadequate. And my mum was a teacher at the school, actually. At so the school, and you were still, still bullied? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. What do they think about your mum then? Because she was the mother of the swamp rats. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My, people love my mum. She's a pretty lovable person. Um, but, yeah, she suffered her own struggles with this place, um, which I'm not going to go into. No, no, no. I understand. But yeah. with, our family has struggled a lot with with that for a long period of time. And, in fact, my brother actually took his own life um, mm. and was very much impacted by the childhood bullying. Yeah. Right. And how old was he when he took his own life? Uh, he was 38, so 38. three and a half years ago. So yeah. you, you believe that, well, you know that that's had an impact on him, lifelong impact. Oh, yeah. He talked about it, like, almost every time right. I saw him. Mm-hmm. It would, it, it, something about our childhood would come up right. about this place, yeah. Right. When you went to high school, did you find you had any particular talents <laughs> debating. Oh, that's fair enough. <laughs> were you part of the local debating club, were you? Um, no, I was. I was just good at debating. Um, I've always been really creative as well. So yeah, kind of like dabbling in music and art and stuff like that, uh, but more as a hobby. Yeah, um, and I've also been really fascinated by geography. So that was one of my strengths. Right. Yeah. So when you went to Albury, the high school in Albury, was that the public high school there, was it? Yeah, James Collins, yeah. Right. And what was life like there for you? Um, well, I had mental health issues, so mm-hmm. I struggled a lot. Um, and I had glandular fever at the beginning oh, of my time there. That's no good. So my year 10 and 11 were pretty shaky. Um, I also had like quite significant depression, um, which was later diagnosed um, in my 30s with bipolar disorder, but at the time they didn't realise that I had that. So mm-hmm. I was kind of on antidepressants and going to hospital for glandular fever and, yeah, I really didn't have a sense of belonging there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite a challenge for me, yeah. And would you, did you have a long commute every day to and from school by bus? Uh, yeah, it was about 45 minutes on the bus. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. But I had a pillow, so I used to have a little nap on the way home. <laughs> right. Yeah. Look, I uh, I live uh, in Central Victoria these days, North Central Victoria, and uh, I always feel a bit sorry for the kids when I wander past to go, going to work at about seven thirty in the morning. And they're all lined up waiting for the bus to start school at nine o'clock. You know, about sixty k's away. It's just uh, it must be a terrible, terrible. Must have a terrible toll on kids. I think. I actually saw some teenagers waiting for the bus the other day when I was walking down the street, and yes. they all looked miserable because it was freezing, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I said to them, don't worry, one day you'll grow up and you'll be an adult and you'll never have to stand here ever again. And they all went, yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a, If you live in the country, it's kind of a, a recurring picture, you know, if you go through a yeah. small town at that time of the morning. I remember one particular young woman... Oh, she might be 13, 14, and she catches the bus two k's down the road from where everybody else catches the bus, and she's just standing there like a mm-hmm. shag on a rock, you know, poor thing. I go past yeah, every morning, I think, upstanding. and it's cold, and it's miserable, yeah. and it's raining. And I assume you went through all that, did you? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. We used to, like, ride our bikes down to the corner and chuck our bikes behind the tree. Yeah. And then we'd wait for the bus, and, yeah, if it was late, everyone was grumpy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So when you, considering all the um, issues you were facing as a young mm. person, when you finished high school, uh, what trajectory did your life take? Uh, I went to Melbourne and I did some really bad telemarketing jobs and worked in an ice creamery and, and just scrimped and saved as much as I could to um, go to Sweden and become a nanny there mm. for a little while. Now, um, now I on. deferred university. Yeah, all right. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back. This is interesting. This is interesting. Why Sweden? Uh, my cousin um, is married to a woman who's Swedish. Mm-hmm. And I went to their house one day and I said, I'd love to travel. I've always wanted to travel. And she said, well, why don't you go to Sweden? I've got a friend there. You could be her nanny. Right. Um Let's do it. So I said, okay, let's do it. How old were you, 20 or 19 or something? I was 18. 18. And what did your parents think about you going to Sweden at 18? I thought it was great. Oh, that's good. Get rid of you. (laughs) 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 All right. So this is interesting because I've been to Sweden a few times and I've I've enjoyed my times there, mainly because of the landscape, which is quite extraordinary. Mm. Where did you find yourself in Sweden? So I was living in an apartment just outside of Stockholm called mm-hmm. Upland Busby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking after a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Right. Um, and the dad was on paternity leave, so he went to America to visit his family there. Right. Um, and the mum was a nurse, so, um, yeah, she would go to hospital every day for a few weeks. And then when she realised how fun it was to have this Aussie 18-year-old person that she could muck around with, she yeah. decided to take some leave too. So she right. took leave and then we just hung out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So what did you do when you hung out? What you can tell us on the radio anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we went to Ikea. <laughs> oh. oh, you can do that in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> Back then it was, you know, pretty fresh. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, we did, you have, did, you have the me- did you have the meatballs? Oh, good. <laughs> well, you're a real Ikean then. <laughs> <laughs> um, we just mucked around. Like, we put shelves up and painted things and, like, just did 
home decorating stuff and mm. we'd go in the car because she didn't have a license and so I would drive and we'd, I'd be driving like to these castles and like glass making factories and clothes shops and she, she was loving it because she yeah. had like a chauffeur, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, we just did whatever, you know, whatever we felt like. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Mm. So how long did this last for? Uh, I was there for four months. Right. And then, yeah, I decided to come back um, and start university. So you got your marks were good enough to go to university? Yeah, I just deferred for a year so I could travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, I went to uni. Uh, could you tell us, this is a bit left field, could you tell us something about the Swedish character? You know, there's such a thing as an Australian character. You know, I know it's not real, but it's just a, it, things kind of meld. You know, is there something different about Swedes to Australians? Um, I guess something I noticed was like they're very much into, um, you know, doing stuff at home and making the house, like, different for different seasons because I guess because it's so cold there, you know, people put a lot of effort into redecorating their home in different seasons and Mm. spending that kind of intimate family time at home, which was really lovely and lots of different baking for different seasons and different events. And Mm. so, yeah, I really like that aspect of it. Maybe it's because you're trapped indoors a lot. Yeah, was there was there there's any any of the residual pagan culture in as far as the festivals were concerned? Um, I'm trying to think. God, it was such a long time ago. Yeah, burning witches, something interesting, you know, worshiping a troll. <laughs> no. Not that I remember. No, Not that I remember. Right. Okay, all yeah, right. I don't remember worshiping any trolls. No, no, no. You did you see any trolls? No. <laughs> well, I was, I, uh, people tried to convince me there were trolls out there, you know, and you'd go out to the land and they say, oh, you know, that looks like a place a troll would live in, you know. <laughs> yeah, but um, Were you there in winter, were you? I was there in winter. Oh, yeah. it's and marvellous, isn't it? It's just picture postcard. You know where those Christmas picture postcards come from, mm. don't you? Yeah. yeah. It was really funny, though, because um, I was waiting for snow, you know, just kept waiting and waiting, and it didn't come. And, like... It was Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. and it still hadn't snowed. Right. And everybody was saying, this is, like, completely insane. It's always <laughs> snowing by now, you know. And I said, this always happens to my family. They always, everywhere we go, they say, oh, this doesn't happen for 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> so you never saw the snow? Well, I did. So it was New Year's Eve, and we were at someone else's apartment. And I remember that one of the people went home, and so they went downstairs, and then when they got downstairs, it started snowing, so we could hear them screaming <laughs> downstairs. Yeah. Sally, Sally! And so then we opened the window, and it was snowing then, and I was like, yeah, it snowed just in time for Christmas. How did you feel about the shortened days? I don't think people, Australians understand how the impact it has on psychology, people's psychology. Oh, it's so strange. It's, yeah, very strange. Um, just that feeling of you don't have much time, that's what it felt like. You've only got a small window. And I remember once I caught the bus um, back from the station and it was so dark, it was like 4pm and it was so dark that I couldn't actually see where to get off. So I just stayed on the bus until the bus driver was like, "Um, you have to get off. (laughs) I was like, I don't know where I am. (laughs) I can't see anything. (laughs) Oh, you're quite right. I'm going to tell you a funny story. This this happened to me before you were born. I was... um, (laughs) 
I did a four-day round trip on behalf of a hospital I was working at to present a very important medical paper at a conference in Oslo in Norway. And I think yeah. it, was, it was mid-summer, or I think it was 79. And, I mean, the trip had been paid for by the hospital. We'd done two years' research, you know, and this was, this was the big presentation. And I had been given the honour as the youngest member of the research team to go down there and present this paper. I get there, find the hotel, fall asleep, wake up, it's light. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. I've missed my presentation. How am I going to explain this back in at the hospital? So I rushed downstairs, nobody in the foyer, rushed outside. There's nobody on the streets. And I eventually bump into this police officer and he said, I said, where's everybody? What's the time? He said, it's 4 a.m. What are you doing out? (laughs) That's the land of the midnight sun, as they used to say. And I think people forget that, that... uh, did you sleep through your presentation then, Joe? No, no, it was 4am. I actually woken up early and oh, I thought really? I thought it was afternoon because <laughs> the light was there. <laughs> no, was, I, can, yeah, I can understand. Yeah, so what did you do at university? Um, so I studied um, a Bachelor of Arts, mm-hmm. um, majoring in um, sociology and anthropology. Right. Um, so I did that and then after that I did a postgraduate um, diploma in education. So what, you are following your mother's footsteps, were you, or was it just something to do? Um, I think, I'm thinking back, I think at the time I was like, I really like being around children more than adults, and I wanted a job that I could do anywhere in the world. Right. So that was kind of my motivating force behind doing that. Yeah. And what's your old alma mater? What university did you go to? I went to La Trobe University. La Trobe, right. And yeah, in Bandura. Yep, I remember La Trobe well. So once you finished that, you were chucked out into the real world. What happened? Um, I started working as a teacher. Um, I had a year one, two class um, for a couple of years, and then I changed to a different school because of the contract system in Victoria. Um, it's really hard to keep um, in the one job because, yeah, it's just got a really crazy system of contracts. Um, so I moved to a different school and I taught uh, year one, two again, and then I had a year five, six, and I had some serious um, issues with the way that the schools were expecting me to teach as opposed to how I would like to teach. So I got into trouble for teaching human rights and, you know, Mm. doing all these sorts of things. Um, And so I decided, yeah, to just go overseas, uh, take Mm. a break Mm. um, and, yeah, do some other stuff for a while. I think people forget there's a curriculum which you've got to follow and that you're on a short-term contract which means that they can get rid of you at any time they like, basically. Hmm. Yeah. I've had a friend who has basically been deregistered as a teacher for refusing to do examinations, you know. Mm. So obviously when you're doing grade ones and twos, it wasn't an issue. It was only when you started teaching older children that it became an issue? Um, it was in particular when I was teaching year five, six, yeah. teaching yeah. about human rights. They didn't mm. want me to teach about human rights. The irony is now that all these years later, um, 
it's actually one of the school values is human rights. So yeah. it's changed a lot since back then. <laughs> so think of yourself as a pioneer, one of these, you know, and this is this is this is the trouble with being an activist. You know, you you kind of do the hard yards, things change, and nobody acknowledges it. Mm. Acknowledges the effort you put into that because it did have a profound impact on you. You got to such a stage that you said, "Look, sorry, <laughs> we sh- I'm going to move on. I'm going to go overseas." Yeah, and I did stay in teaching, and I taught overseas, and I taught. I actually taught for sixteen years in total. I just didn't go back to being a full-time teacher. I have Mm -hmm. taken on short-term contracts or done casual teaching for Mm -hmm. those years um, so that I'm able to have a bit more flexibility um, around my work and around my values. And Mm -hmm. what I am giving into that system is, you know, more wholesome, I think, because of my choices. Um, If I had to remain in the system as a full-time teacher, uh, I don't think that would have fared very well for my own self. Yeah, right. it's, a, it's, um, it's at odds often with where I stand. Right. So when you went overseas, where did you teach? Um, so I went overseas um, a couple of times and I taught in London. Um, it was very easy to get work in London as a teacher. They love Australian teachers. Uh, so I did CRT work there and I got a contract at a school a couple of days a week. Um, and I, I've popped back and forth a couple of times in some that. Right. And while, yeah. you, while you're in London, what's this, this 1990s or a bit later? Uh, no, 2000 and... What are we looking at? 2000 and... I'm going to say nine, I think. Right. What was life like in London at that particular point in time? Um, I just hung out with friends and partied and on the weekends, I'd buy a plane ticket to somewhere in Europe and <laughs> have a weekend in Europe and go back again. I like that. <laughs> it was a bit cash, you know. It was quite yeah. a casual life then. It wasn't like my real life. It was like my fake life in a way, you know, my holiday life, really. Yeah, I just worked life. to get money to go and do something. All right, come on, come on. You can share this with us. Where'd you go? That was interesting. <laughs> Look, everybody's in lockdown. Nobody can go anywhere. So kind of give us some vicarious... You know, pleasures. Where'd you go? Did you go to Paris, uh, Berlin, yeah. Rome, Seville? I went to many of those places. Budapest and, yeah, I went to um, Spain and, uh-huh. yeah, I went back to Sweden and hung out with the family. Uh-huh. Um, they came to London and hung out with me. Um, yeah, the kids would have been. How old were the kids been by then? Oh, so... Good question. So they were one and three yeah. back then. Yeah. So they must have been 18, I think. Yeah, were they rebellious teenagers like you? Or? No, they're quite no. good, actually. <laughs> yeah, because it's unusual for an 18-year-old to go overseas with their parents these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Wow. What did you think of Budapest? I loved it. I think it's a great place. Yeah. It's so interesting. Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Mm. So so all during this period, uh, you were kind of a um, cupboard anarchist, were you? Yeah. Yeah, basically. (laughs) So... 
well, you're involved in any any uh, overt politi- political or cultural um, uh, events during this period after you left university till say 2009, 2010? Yes, yeah, so I used to um, do the um, blockade at the front of the Nike store every Friday night. Right, um, I did yeah. F11, nearly got my head knocked in with a police horse. Um, yes. You know, I did kind of, you know, kind of dibbed in and out. And I guess because also my mental health has been all over the place. So I'd always kind of gone in and out of different groups, different actions, different, you know, things. I'm sort of dynamic in that sense. I go wherever I feel I can make an impact in that moment. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was involved with Occupy Melbourne and, yeah, so I used to do stuff back then. The first thing I remember is actually back in high school when Pauline Hanson came to town. That was the first kind of, my first memory of being out on the streets. Hmm. It was interesting. I was just looking at a um, poll before I started speaking to you and uh, 4% of the population still say they're going to vote for the One Nation Party. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's one in 25. Mm. That's an extraordinary okay. number. It's quite depressing when you think about it, what, it they, what, what, what they stand for. But, mm. Getty, so what did you do when Pauline Hanson came to uh, Albury? What I remember is, I feel like she was on a bus and mm. we were like blockading the gate and I remember this bus going through and we were just kind of chanting at her and then, yeah, the TV reporters were there. Yeah. It was a big deal for me at the time because, you know, it seemed like it was going to be really significant, like we were really going to change things, <laughs> you know? Yes. That was my feeling at the time. Yes. I was like, yes, yeah, this is going yeah. to make such a huge difference. Uh, and you got a thirty-second spot on the Albury News on Win Network, most likely. <laughs> 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 <Yeah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> do you think it makes a difference? Yeah, I do. Yeah. What yeah. makes you, what what makes you say that? I think that it wakes people up. I think that you know we're all caught in this kind of road of survival, and it's easy to be kind of have your blinkers on and and go, I need to, you know, get food on the table. I need to spend time with my family. I need to look after my health. And, you know, a lot of people are just in that. So when you have people going, actually, yeah, that's there and we get that. But also look at the people who are making these decisions about how we do that. I think it wakes people up. And I, you know, I always have a long-term perspective of activism. I, I know that, you know, the short-term gains are far and few. And so I think that, you know, it helps with that kind of bringing people on board and awareness. Like, awareness is always the beginning of any change. Mm-hmm. So that is awareness building, I think, is really important. And yeah. someone has to do that. Well, I think people forget that. Like you said, you did human rights, grade five, six, and you were basically forced out of teaching. And then you find that, what, 15, 20 years later, it's part of the curriculum. And if you don't teach mm-hmm. that... You're forced to have a teacher. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it it does make a difference having somebody stand up because they may spit at you or call your names at that particular point in time, but maybe later on it does, you know, have have an impact. And like you said, the long haul. I Mm. remember there's a a radical bookshop in um, San Francisco called The Long Haul for that very reason. Mm. I don't know if you know this, but there's an Inuit party that's just one power in Greenland, and uh, they've been 
active since the mid 19s. They were formed in 1975 at the end of the, that radical push, and they've just um, passed legislation in the last two weeks to stop uranium exploration, oil exploration, and rare earth exploration in Greenland. So, wow. And that's, that was a long struggle for them. It's almost 50 years, and I think people forget that it takes time. I've got th- I think that's something yeah. we can learn from, mm. you know, First Nations activists and communities who, mm. you know, that these, that the things that we think, you know, we're going to stand up today and it's going to make a difference tomorrow. Like that's, you know, we're seeing now what, what people have been doing for, since colonisation is, is there's power in, in, in the community now that really shines. And I think that's something that we can all learn from, you know, this, this long-term perspective of change—it takes everybody to come on board over time. Yeah, it does. Especially if you're, a, you know, you've got a democratic focus. You know, uh, you got to get people on board. As I, as I keep saying, I'm sure it's not an original idea. I say there are two types of activists: there are meteorites and stars. And I'm sure you've come across the meteorites. They jump into something, they're going to change the world in 12 months and they're all burnt out and you never see them again. And there's people like you, a star, you know, continues to shine brightly. The trouble is there's too many meteorites and not enough activist stars, I'm afraid, Sally. I think one of the issues is that it's, you know, we don't have necessarily um, that understanding of the long perspective and... People get burnt out because of mental health stuff as well. There's a, you know, and I know that Friends of the Earth does some um, some work around that with activists, and I'm sure there's other organisations that are doing it too. Um, taking care of each other's mental health is really important to be able to continue the work and to not feel like you have to do everything all at once. That you know, sometimes you need that time and space to sit back and reflect and. You know, some, I say, you know, sometimes I have my donating phase where I'm just donating because I don't have the physical, mental energy to stand out on the street for this couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so I pull back and, you know, that's one of the things, the challenges, I suppose, for everybody is to maintain longevity and activism. You have to take care of yourself and we have to take care of each other. And mm-hmm. that's a community, you know, group kind of mentality that needs to be engaged with so that people can keep doing activism in the long term because there's always something to stand up for it's that never ends and it's easy to feel overwhelmed and say well there's just too much out there and i don't know how to you know i don't know how to manage it but you know being aware of when we stand forward and when we step back and when it's our time to talk and when it's our time to listen they're the lessons that you learn over time i suppose yeah you're you're quite right i mean it's um something I advise people to do if they're going to be in long-term activism is to not just be involved in general struggle, be involved in specific struggle, things you can win, simple things, because that actually helps you to continue uh, that struggle. Now, you said you've had mental health issues. Have you dealt with them through conventional means or more kind of withdrawing and going into a personal asylum type of a situation? Personal asylum definitely my thing mm. <laughs> um, and I've actually yeah I've I don't take medication um, mm. and I am actually a hypnotherapist now I've trained to be a hypnotherapist and I treat my own mental health and the mental health of other people through those means and 
yeah, I found that I can't engage with the systems here for mental health. Um, they've caused more damage to me than they've helped me, so I had to go into my own, like you said, personal asylum and mm. and find my own way. Right. So what drew you to hypnotherapy? Um, I guess the fact that you don't have to talk, that right. you can listen, um, that there's, it's positive, it's safe, it's calm, um, it's yeah, relaxing, it's creative, all of those things. And the fact that I can do it on myself and do it with other people and that it's really effective um, and it's, it creates a sense of resources. My own internal resources are stronger because I've I've fought hypnotherapy in my life. But when, when did you come across hypnotherapy? I mean, it's a, I mean, you're going down an orthodox path, and it's well, it's not non-orthodox. It is pretty orthodox in certain circles. But how did you come across it? How did you stumble across it? I've always been interested in it. My dad tells me story of being hypnotised when he was younger, and mm. I've always been like, "Oh, that sounds incredible." Um, and I've had a few exposures to it in random places, um, and I just I've always felt drawn to the idea that things are not set, that, you know, this condition that I have um, and these thoughts and these feelings that I have, you know, somehow I could get some kind of um, way to manage them and have some capacity to change them. I guess it's my underlying belief that things, belief in change, you know, it's the activist in me that believes in change. So um, the idea that I could change my own experience of life and not just be the victim of all the things that I've been through and this illness that is inside of me. Um, yeah, it drew me towards that style of therapy. Did you do an orthodox training course or did you train yourself? Um, I did a training course. Um, what, what, a, what, did that, what does that entail? Um, it entailed a lot of practice with groups and one-on-one, um, practicing hypnotherapy, um, significant amounts of reading of clinical hypnosis um, and online lectures. Yeah. Mm. So what's your responsibility to the person you put putting under hypnotherapy? My responsibility? Mm. Obviously, um, it's, uh, it's very personal, interpersonal type mm. of uh, relationship. It's not like me writing somebody a script and saying, go and take this for your bipolar, all right? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's a much more hands-on, interpersonal, so obviously. Yeah. What responsibility do you feel? Um, the safety of the person. Mm, that's um, what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, their, their mental safety is important, um, that, that they maintain control over everything um, and their dignity, respect for them as an individual and... Um, yeah, the basic foundations of all good therapy, I suppose, dignity and respect. Mm. And how long have you been practicing hypnotherapy for? Um, I've just started. I've only oh, you just started, right? Months, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you haven't had any patients yet? No, I have. Yeah, I've, have. Got, I've got people. Yeah, right, you've got yeah. people that come in. What What do you call them? Apart from their people. first name, <laughs> I call them people. You, you, you see people. Oh, that's I right. see people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Other people call them clients, but I, I call them people. Yeah, clients got an unsatisfactory sound to it, doesn't it? It's kind mm. of a commercial relationship, a client. Mm. Yeah, you're a yeah. service provider. 
So, do you have to register with anybody, or can you just put yes. up a shingle? Ah, uh, look, you know, it's, it's these sort of holistic treatments. Are, you know, struggle with the regulation because government doesn't really like us. They'd rather us just, you know, have pills. Mm. Um, but there are there is an organise a couple of organisations, and yeah, I'm registered with one of them. Right. Do you have yep. to do you have to take out insurance? I have insurance and I have to have clinical supervision every month for the right. first year. Right. Mm. Okay. And do you think you're going to make a difference to people in personally through hypnotherapy? Yeah, yeah I already am. And I think in a way, like I want to say no because actually it's them that's making the difference, not mm. me. But um, yes, people are looking for um, other people with lived experience who are doing well and they're looking for other sorts of um, ways to manage mental illness that isn't medication and just talking about your problems. So people are, I think, drawn to... A lot of people who have had long-term mental health struggles are drawn to these types of alternatives, so-called therapies, because they've been through the mainstream and it hasn't had the impact that they're hoping it would. So, mm. yeah, I, I've already got people who have, who have told me that this has changed their life and well, it's changed my life dramatically. How's it changed your life? I'm a lot calmer. Um, I don't doubt myself anymore. Um, I'm here talking to you, which is something I probably wouldn't have done before without having questions and a structure and a, right. you know, two weeks to prepare. You know, <laughs> um, it's yeah. I guess I've come. To, I've been able to find my own true nature and restore that. Right. So, what have you gone back to your childhood, or do you yeah. think? Right. Yeah. I've gone back to who I was when I was five, when I was more free and could say what I wanted to say without worrying about what other people think of me. So you've gone past that phase of worrying about other people, what they think of you. Yeah. It's a big thing. It's a big thing. We all have that thing, but it it comes back. But it's like, am I going to attach myself to it or am I going to live my true self? You know, what am I going to choose here, you know? Mm. How do you think it works? What's the physiology or the behind it? I'm not questioning it. I, mean, I think hypnotherapy does things because I've referred patients to hypotherapists in the past. Yeah. But, but how how does it work? That's a great question. It's <laughs> 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 a very big, long answer. But I'll give um, us the long I, answer. This is a long interview. Give us a long answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, well, I guess the thing is about hypnotherapy is that, you know, you, you're speaking to your subconscious mind. So you're speaking to what's already there, you know, and bringing out what that subconscious mind needs in order for you to heal. So you're bringing forth, um, I guess, the internal resources that in a way we, we lose over time because of our society, you know. So to me it's kind of bringing us to a state of our natural flow of what's already in, in there internally. And by giving people positive suggestions, they're able to then create neural pathways for those suggestions mm. ongoingly. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of like what you focus on is what grows. So if I focus on, you know, I'm sick, i confused, you know, people are after me, um, I'm angry, all of those things that I used to focus on before because that was my real experience. My real experience was that, you know, mm. that I'm scared and, 
you know, I'm anxious and the world's crazy and all these sorts of things. Um, mm. And through hypnotherapy, by having positive suggestions of the things that I already know or feel inside of myself and just want to grow them bigger, then that's what's happened. My focus has gone into that and those things have grown and the other things have subsided. And so it's that real pure flow and focus on something is what makes it, it grow in a way. Mm, you, and that's how hypnotherapy works. Yeah, well, you've raised a very interesting concept that's quite relatively new in the medical world, and that's the concept of neuroplasticity. Mm. I mean, mm. I see hypnotherapy as fast-tracked psychoanalysis. People used to think mm. that psychoanalysis was a lot of garbage, but I think over the last few years people have realised that that long-term relationship with the psychoanalyst actually changes neural pathways. And what you're doing is you're basically getting the person you're treating to put their hands inside their head basically mm. through hypnotherapy and pulling out what are the positives mm. and, and, and bringing them back to that reality so I see it as fast track psychoanalysis and much much cheaper so much cheaper <laughs> yeah. so much quicker and so yeah. much like less traumatic yeah. you know it's not yeah. traumatic to sit for me I mean I know some people mm. with mm. trauma struggle to sit and listen and close their eyes and go into their minds so it's, I'm not saying that it's a you know fix all for everybody, but no. for me to sit in a comfortable chair and listen to a hypnosis for 30 minutes mm. is so pleasant compared to going every week into an office and talking to somebody. That's right, reliving the experience over and over and over again and reinforcing the neural pathways. Yeah. Mm. And that, that's yeah. the dilemma. I mean, a lot of people used to say, if you're, if you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse you need to relive the experience and it's only recently that people realize all we've done is made things worse mm. and i think the, this new research into neuroplasticity the fact that the brain changes with changing circumstances mm -hmm. because when i went through medical school in the 1970s we were told that the brain was a fixed mm. organism it didn't change and then we were told it changed when you were young and now we've been told it changes all the time so yeah, yeah, I think I think you've um, fallen into a very interesting profession because I see hypnotherapy as a profession if it's done properly and you do the right uh, training and have the right um, attitude towards it. So, how does a hypnotherapist survive in a small country town? Well, I'm just starting out, so. I Right. tell you that in maybe another six months. <laughs> I'll ask you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they'll bring uh, fruit and vegetables, mainly vegetables in that part of the world. <laughs> as I, would payment. Be, I would be so happy for that. That would be my ideal. Be right. like, bring me a bag of lemons and I'll, you know, do some hypnosis on you. <laughs> yeah, and get you to grow bigger lemons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, look, you know, I, I guess I believe in myself and I believe in this work and I believe that it will be okay and that's what I have to yeah, believe yeah. so well, it will be okay whatever whatever you know I, whoever lives I'm meant to cross paths with that's what will happen yeah. you know so you look I don't want to horrify you Sally but the only thing I can hypnotize is chickens <laughs> <laughs> did you ever hypnotize chickens as a child no, oh, no. It's quite, quite interesting. How do you hypnotise chickens? Oh, it's very simple. What you do is you get a pencil, right, and you put it on the ground, and then mm. you put the chickens gently, you put the chicken's head next to the pencil so its eyes are 
looking at the pencil and you hold right. it there for about two minutes and then you let go and it won't move. It's hypnotised. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. I shouldn't say this over here. I have kids all over. What was the purpose of this? We were kids. We were kids, you know. It's, it's <laughs> oh, yeah, you were kids. Kids, you just impress the other kids. You know, oh, look, he can hypnotise a chook, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I learned it from my parents who used to cut off chickens' heads, you know, and then they used to pluck them and, you know, and prepare them. So maybe that's what they... It was, it was a gentle chicken euthanasia, you know. You hypnotise them and chop off their heads. I, I can't remember. That's sorry about this. It's just that's you okay. reminded me. <laughs> so... Ha, ha, so in a better space, you're um, pushing what? You're pushing. You're over forty. You're pushing your mid forties. You got I'm any, forty. Yeah. Forty. You got any f- future plans? Oh, future. Not really. Um, just to keep doing what needs to be done around me, I suppose, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. responding to what's happening in a positive way. Like I kind of yeah. Planning in the future doesn't seem to be something that is crossing my mind at the moment. Right. The world's a bit uncertain to plan, I suppose. So, yeah. Right. And you're living up country these days? You said back to yep. your... And what's it like going back there? You still feel isolated or...? It's quite isolating. Um, mm. But it's for me, it's been a necessary isolation, I suppose, in mm. order to sort out my brain so um yeah i've made peace with the physical isolation of not being near my friends um which is the main thing that i feel and i guess because of covid you know everybody's in lockdown a lot of the time and that's made it a bit challenging because most of my friends live in melbourne so it's been hard to meet people here because of covid so i'm kind of in that phase now where i'm starting to develop a bit of community here and meet people and um, and now COVID's kind of reared again so we'll go back into the shell for a bit but um, yeah I guess my main focus is just building my community around where I live and finding like-minded people to do stuff with including activism. Mm. Do, you tend to come, do you intend to come back to Melbourne at some stage or are you going to be up there for a while? No I intend to stay here. You my family stay. lives here, my right. nieces and nephews and my brother's children and my sister and her children. So right, so you've got an extensive I, I want to be with them, mm. yeah. So you'll have to invite, once all this lockdown business finishes in a few years' time, you'll have to invite your friends to come and visit you, those yes. that you want to invite anyway. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. It would be so great to have them here and show them, yeah. you know, What's around this place? Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm I'm your friend. All right. <laughs> think <laughs> think of me as your friend, although you've never met me. All right. And I've turned up. Where are you going to take me? Paddleboarding on the Murray River. Paddleboarding. Mm. Ah. You're going to keep me away from the widow makers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody knows what we're talking about, do they? They're not used to the Murray, are they? No. Widow. Well, so beautiful. Yeah. 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 Well, mi- widow makers are that trees, gum trees that fall on you, just for in case anybody's listening. I mean, I, I, um, I deal with people who've got profound physical disabilities after mm. trauma, and I've had a number of uh, patients, I call them patients anyway, who've dived into the Murray and hit a submerged yeah. gum tree and become a quadriplegic. Yeah, it's yeah. quite amazing. It's an amazing... Yeah, my dad always talked about that. He said... You've got to be careful what's under the water. Yeah, yep. yep. 
Yeah, it's like an iceberg. The Murray's like an iceberg. There's just mm. so much under that water. All right, we've gone paddle. Anything else I'm going to do with you? Um, I'm going to take you to Morgan's Lookout. What's that? It's a rock formation um, that used to be where the bush ranger Mad... Oh, Mad, Mad. Yeah, is that where he got killed, was it? Um, should probably know that answer, but I don't. Yeah, they, they, um, you know they cut off his head and displayed it as a trophy. Mad Dog Morgan, yeah. So there's like a little cutting where he used to hide out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I unfortunately the sad part of this is that the First Nations history is not very well um, kind of expressed here. So right. it's difficult for me to know what that place was before colonisation. But mm-hmm. I would imagine it was quite a spiritually um, significant site. Mm. I'm sure it was. I'm sure with time you'll um, find out all that history and I think that's something, every, especially if you're going to be there for forever and ever, it's a, it's a good good start. Now, Sally, it's been a joy speaking to you. You've given us many insights, which I think a lot of people would um, would value. Now, as you're one of us, one of the elderly folk, because you're over 40 now. Have you got any parting? <laughs> have you got any parting thoughts for any young listeners who are about to embark on this journey of activism? Um, I guess just connecting with good people, supporting each other, you know, and finding the people that you know align with you, and you know you're able to travel on that journey for a long time together because it is a long game, and you have to look after yourself and look after each other. Well, on that note, Sally, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. I'm sure this chat will uh, influence uh, a younger generation and uh, I wish you all the best in your new career as a hypnotherapist and uh, hopefully, uh, although you've got no plans, that uh, your life will be a a productive and uh, joyful one. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.